Good morning. It's uh, good to be back with you today. I missed you last week. I want to say up front uh, that this is a tough sermon to preach. And uh, because I so clearly see my weakness and my lack in the, on the subject, uh, I usually feel this way, but today more so. <laughs> Um, and I don't think I can blame it on being Irish-Italian. We are talking about anger today. But please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5. And then stand with me for God's Word. We're going to read Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. Though we'll be looking at two verses today, 21 and 22. Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 21. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way, so that your your opponent may not hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for this day. We, we thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. We thank you, Lord, that you're here with us. We thank you, Lord, that our lives are in your hands. And we thank you, God, for, for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in your word that we would be changed by you as we dwell upon these truths. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the first thing I'll say is quite obvious. Everyone deals with anger. We experience disappointment and imperfection, uh, misery and sin, both ours and others. And we get angry. You get angry. I get angry. Anger is pretty much a given. We think, say, and do things in anger that we regret later. Now, uncontrolled anger wreaks havoc on on humanity. It is a cancerous force that attacks and destroys. A desire for justice that has been perverted and turned into bitterness and retaliation and violence. That's uncontrolled anger. All around us we see its effects. From murder to the smallest outbursts. But even so, as you look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22, it may sound pretty harsh. Those consequences for those words, what's the big deal? It might sound pretty harsh and unreasonable to those who've been conditioned to believe that venting anger can be a good and healthy thing. 
And to those who've been trained to uh, think nothing of throwing around a few words, a name or two at those they are angry at or they disagree with. What's Jesus saying in Matthew 5, 21 and 22? Is he saying that it is a sin to be angry? Is he saying that we can't be angry without these huge consequences? What is he saying? And, and what do we do with all this anger we have? Some of us more than others. Well, we need to understand the situation first. In the first century, or we might miss the meaning of what Jesus is saying, context is essential Now, Jesus is speaking to people who had long been held captive, not only by their own sins, but by their religious leaders. Their religious leaders and the worldview of those leaders are telling them what to think, telling them what to do. And Jesus had come to free them from the tyranny of sin that led them to death. Here is Jesus saying to people hungry for the truth, blessed are you. Blessed are you. When you are in relationship to me. Blessed are you who know that you are spiritually bankrupt without me. Blessed are you who mourn and weep over your sin. Blessed are those who are at peace with me and who make peace with other people. Jesus explains their identity in the Beatitudes. The identity of those who belong to Jesus. And then he explains their role and their function of salt and light and being influences for good in society. And then he highlighted their need for his word, its authority, its sufficiency uh, of scripture. And now he starts to clear up some common misunderstandings with regard to scripture. With regard to his word, he sets the record straight. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 21, all the way to the end of this chapter, to verse 48. They contain six sections. Six sections, each having a very, starting with a variation of Jesus' words, you have heard, but I say to you. Making a contrast what they'd heard and what he had to say. You see it in Matthew 5.21 and 5.27 and 5.31 and 33 and 38 and 43. Some variation of this formula, you have heard, but I say to you. And what Jesus does in these six sections is he addresses things common to all people. He addresses murder and anger first. He addresses sexual sin next. And then divorce. And then speaking truth. And retaliation. And loving others. Some think Jesus was doing away with the Old Testament at this point. Or at least disagreeing with some of the laws in the Old Testament. Jesus is not criticizing the Old Testament here. He is criticizing people's understanding of it and their perversion of it. Jesus is not doing away with the law, but he's showing the ultimate meaning of the law. There was a clear contrast between what the people had been taught by the scribes and the Pharisees and what Jesus is saying here. In every case, in every one of the six movements here, Jesus is contrasting the people's misunderstanding with the true intent and the true meaning of the law. Where the law was pointing when God gave it. The direction to which it was heading. So in keeping with Jesus saying that he did not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it, to complete it, 
he first quotes the sixth commandment. The sixth commandment which deals with murder. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 21, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. And, quote, whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Exodus 20 and verse 13, the sixth commandment says, you shall not murder. It's quite simple. You shall not murder. The first crime that was ever committed was murder. Genesis 4, 8. Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Anger was behind the crime. Cain had become very angry that that God accepted Abel's offering and not his. His heart was not right with God. He was not worshiping God in the way that God had wanted him to. God had asked him a question. He said to Cain in Genesis 4, 6, Why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? Sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain did not master it. Cain gave in. Cain let anger master him and killed his brother. He knew that he had gone against God's design. He knew that murder was not in the plan. He knew it was wrong. The Old Testament is very clear on what to do with the murderer. The first time the Bible prohibits murder is after the flood. It's found in Genesis 9-6. It says this, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. And there's a reason for it. There's a reason for it. It says, the other half of the verse says, For in the image of God he made man. Go with me to Exodus 21. Exodus chapter 21 explains a little bit more the sixth command, you shall not murder. Exodus 21 and verse 12 says, he who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint you a place to which he will flee, he may flee those cities of refuge. If, however, verse 14, a man acts presumptuously towards his neighbor so as to kill him craftily, you are to take him even from my altar that he may die. Numbers, chapter 35. And verse 31, at 30 says, if anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death at the evidence of witnesses, but no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness, Moreover, you shall not take ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death. He shall surely be put to death. See, people were trying to soften the consequence, ransom their life, and God says, no, they must die. You could not reduce it to a lesser sentence. And the reason that God requires the life of a murderer is for the very reason that human life is so valuable to him. That's why. That's why God requires the life of a murderer. To let the guilty go free devalues the life of the one made in God's image who was killed. Now there are seven words in the Bible for killing. Uh, 
but the one used in the sixth commandment, rasha, means premeditated and deliberate murder. Premeditated and deliberate murder, either of self in suicide or someone else, homicide. Uh, We are our brother's keeper, contrary to Cain's uh, insistence. God has entrusted our lives into each other's hands. A person's life is given to him by God, and God alone has power over life and death. A person's life is a boundary we dare not cross. Therefore, abortion, pre-birth murder, and suicide are clearly wrong. Life is sacred to God. Life is sacred in God's sight. Now, the second half of verse 21 in Matthew 5 expresses the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. Evidently, they had taught the people that whoever commits murder will be liable to the court. Now, in those days, Rome exercised the power of the sword over all criminal cases, even those covered by Jewish law. When Jewish law condemned a man to death, the Romans generally stayed out of it. But in cases where a person committed a crime that was both broke Jewish law and Roman law, like murder, the Romans allowed the Jews to conduct their own trial, as long as they later surrendered the guilty party over to the Romans for a separate trial under their law. In such cases, the Romans allowed the Sanhedrin to present the prosecution's case before a Roman judge. That's what they did with Jesus. But the scribes and the Pharisees, telling the people that they'd be liable to the court if they murdered, while on some sen- in some sense accurate, left out part of the picture. It was a partial truth. It fell short of the biblical standard on several fronts. They had neglected to prescribe the death penalty. You'll be liable to the court and be killed for your crime. That's what they should have said. They neglected to prescribe the death penalty. They forgot to mention God's holiness. They said nothing of displeasing him or of stepping into his place by taking the life of one made in his image. And they did not address, most importantly, the heart attitude of the murderer. Did not address it. See, with regard to the sixth command, it seems as if the scribes and the Pharisees were trying to restrict the application to the actual deed of murder. The crime of spilling innocent blood and homicide. They figured, if you didn't do that, you're in the clear. If you didn't do that, you'd kept God's command. I didn't murder anyone, and I'm going to guess that everyone here is in that, in, in that situation. I haven't murdered anyone, so I'm innocent. I've kept the sixth command, do not murder. I'm good. All is well. Jesus did not agree. Jesus did not agree with that line of thinking. He responds in Matthew 5.22 by saying, I say to you, Okay, so you have heard that it was said that you should not commit murder, the sixth commandment, and if you do commit murder, you're going to be sent to the court. He says, no, but I say to you, and every time he uses this formula, I, he is using the word very strongly, very authoritatively. 
I say to you, here is the giver and the, the author of the law, God in the flesh, the incarnate word of God, and he says, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty to the court, shall be liable to the court. Some translations add the words uh, without cause, angry without cause. Uh, the best reading is those who are angry with their brother shall be guilty, liable before the court. Now, he is not contrasting his teaching with the Old Testament. He is contrasting his teaching with that of the scribes and the Pharisees, what they said. The true application and understanding of the sixth command went beyond what they had been taught and understood it to mean. It included the thoughts and words as well as the deeds, as well as the actions. Now, if you think about murder and anger, you know, we're, we're pretty clear on murder. We, we pretty much understand that. But when it comes to anger, things get cloudy. Things get murky. We're not sure what to do with it. Um, we don't know. We, we all feel the emotion of anger. And, and the question is always, well, do we, do we hold it in? Do we let it fly? What do we do with it? Well, this much is clear. This much is clear. Uncontrolled anger is an attack on a brother's life or a sister's life, a person's life, and it refuses to let a person live. And it is bent on destroying credibility and and cutting down or denigrating character. It's bent on destroying a person. Jesus uses the Greek word orgizo in, in verse 22. It's a word for anger that means to be deeply irritated, to be deeply agitated. It's selfish anger. It is not righteous indignation. It is selfish anger that is nurtured and not allowed to die. I think you know what I'm talking about. It's anger that holds a grudge. It's anger that becomes and remains bitter towards another. It comes from the word orge, which means wrath. Anger as a state of mind. Anger as a state of mind. This kind of anger, Jesus says, equals murder. And he says, angry with his brother. This is not just angry in general, angry at the world, there is, a, there is a focus to this anger. It has already turned into something it should not have. And coupled with the names used to describe the brother, said to their face, it has escalated into something very wrong. Now, we can, we, I know you're tracking with me because we can all relate. This is where we live, isn't it? This is where the rubber meets the road in the Christian life. This is why it's so hard to preach. Once anger gets a foothold, it turns into a destructive force, not only in your life, but in the lives of those it touches. It's poison. It often comes out in the forms of insults and accusations. Insults and accusations. See, Jesus goes on to say in in Matthew 5.22 that whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing... 
shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. The Greek word for good for nothing is raka. It's an Aramaic word. It means empty-headed. Calling someone empty-head. What you're doing is you're calling a person's intelligence into question. Whoever called someone that was liable to the Supreme Court. Not of America. America didn't exist back then. But the Supreme Jewish Court, the Sanhedrin. The highest court of the Jews. And then he goes on to say, and whoever says you fool. Now that sounds so so minimal to us. What's the big deal with that? That's not one of the biggies. Well, the word for you fool is the Greek word more. It is where we get our word moron from. And you might still be thinking, but what's the big deal? Empty head, moron. I call people that all the time. Not me, I, not me. I'm talking about you. <laughs> Let's get that straight. Not all the time, at least. Um, it, the word more, when you use that word in this context, it expresses contempt for a person's heart and character. It's a strong word. It says anyone who calls someone that shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Wow. You know, we can only dream of what hell might be like. They had a hands-on example right outside the city walls. The fiery hell is Gehenna. Gehenna, the city dump of Jerusalem. The valley of Hinnom, west and southwest of Jerusalem, where Ahaz and Manasseh sacrificed their sons to Molech, which caused Josiah to defile the place. Later, the valley was used to burn refuse. It was a dump. The constant burning made it an appropriate reference to the fires of punishment. Jewish writers would, would call uh, the valley of, of Hinnom uh, the entrance to hell. Later, even hell itself. Clearly, uh, anger expressed in insults and accusations. Insults where you attack a person's personhood and character and accusations where you insist that they have done something for wrong reasons though only God sees the heart that's prohibited in scripture turn with me to Galatians 5 we always go to Galatians 5 to look at the fruit of the spirit but I want us to to look at the fruit of the flesh first Galatians 5 Let's start at verse 16. Context here. Paul is talking about Christ has set Christians free. So don't go back to slavery to sin. You called to freedom, he says. And don't let your freedom in Christ be an opportunity for your flesh. And then he says this in verse 16. I say, walk by the Spirit. You will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. These are in opposition to one another. So that you may not do the things that you 
really want to do, the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. In verse 19, now the deeds of the flesh, the fruit of the flesh are evident. What are they? They are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, outbursts of anger, and more. Then you get down to uh, verse 21. I I have warned you before, and I'm going to warn you again, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you live consistently this way, you'll show that you do not have the Spirit of God dwelling within you. Because verse 22 says, the fruit of the Spirit, the outflow of the Spirit of God in a life will be love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And there is no law against that. Do that as often as you like. Verse 24 says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We're to be dead to those things, but those are the things that crop up in our lives. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 29. This verse haunts me. I've tried to claim this as a life verse and it keeps slipping away. And it says this, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, building up, so that it will give, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Now, to call names in Jewish culture was much worse than it is in our culture. It's bad in our culture, but it was much worse. It was, it was highly insulting because you were taking away from the person the significance attached to their name. Names meant something in those days. Today we name our kids because we like the sound of the name or, or we name them after someone. But the names meant something. Basically, when you, when you called names in that culture, you were calling the person's identity into question. Anger is dangerous. See, anger is so dangerous because it devalues and destroys people's lives. We know it breaks the sixth command because Jesus says it does. Like pride, it is an anti-God state of mind. See, anger deceives us. Anger deceives us into thinking that we are in control of another person's fate. Anger makes us think that we are in the driver's seat. Anger, insults, accusations, they are symptoms of a deeper issue. Hatred. Hatred stemming from a desire to get rid of someone who stands in our way. The hatred that desires to get rid of someone who stands in our way. Though we may not say it out loud, when we do that, we basically tell someone, I wish you were dead. Our thoughts, our words, our actions, they demonstrate the health or lack thereof of our souls. Look with me at Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, and the verse we're going to look at that has the word anger in it is the word orge. That anger as a state of mind. Uh, Aristotle said that orge was the desire with grief. 
The Stoics considered it the desire to punish someone who had hurt them. Colossians 3, starting at verse 5, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. It is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now, speaking to those who who have been born again by the Spirit of God through faith in Christ, but now you also put them all aside. Get them out of the way. What? Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. Staying in the state of anger that builds and builds and then harms those in its path is clearly sin. No question about it. No one, we don't need to have anyone tell us that. And, but angry thoughts and, and words may never lead to the ultimate act of murder. But they are tantamount to murder in God's sight. John would later say in 1 John 3.15 that anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Strong words. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Now, we know that no human court is going to try a case of in, for inward murder. You're not going to get convicted by a court of law for inward murder. Uh, excuse me, inward anger. It's not going to happen. Uh, but you will be liable before God, and that's what Jesus is saying here. Jesus extends the nature of the penalty as well as the crime. Why such stiff penalty for words? You might be asking. Just, just words. Remember that old sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never harm me? Come on, what's going on? What's the big deal? The big deal is that Jesus says the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. So that if garbage comes out of my mouth, it's because it was in my heart first. And no one made me do it except me. Our inward condition is of utmost importance to God. God looks at the heart. He searches the heart. So what can we do about our anger? We who are usually so self-protective in our responses to being wrong that we hurt others in anger. Even when we are wronged and the person was wrong, our response is sometimes worse. Well, first we need to recognize something. We need to recognize that all anger is not sin. All anger is not sin. Righteous anger is not sinful. Righteous indignation is not sinful. But we also need to remember that we are rarely, if ever, righteously angry. <laughs> we, just, it just, we just don't go there. More often than not, we allow anger to turn to sinful thoughts and actions. God is the only one completely pure in his anger. God's anger is not sinful. We can't even fathom the thought. Every instance of anger that we have is tainted in some way by sin. 
Because everything in our life here on earth in some way is tainted by sin. We also need to realize that humanly speaking, uncontrolled, unjustifiable, unrighteous anger is sin and therefore falls short of God's glory. Therefore, we will not be glorifying God either now or sometime in the future if we have uncontrolled, unjustifiable, and unrighteous anger. That will not result in God's glory. Now, God can make the wrath of man to praise him, yes. But we will not be glorifying God in that. We will be falling far short. Now, it is not a sin for you to feel anger. Might be angry right now, by the way. Don't get angry at me. I'm just the messenger. You might be angry right now. It is not a sin for you to feel anger. But it is a sin for us to continue in anger and let it become a controlling and destructive influence in our life, in our family, in this body, and out in the community. It is. It is wrong. How many lives and families and churches and communities have been destroyed by anger? We all know people whose lives it has ruined. And we all feel its effects. Every one of us. So how can we become people who yield to God rather than people who yield to anger? How can we become peaceful and loving people? How can we overcome anger? How can we turn from it? How can we even prevent it? Wouldn't that be great? To the glory of God. How can that be possible? I've come up with something that works for me when I apply it. When I'm tempted to think or say or do something out of anger and I have applied this, God has used it to uh, restrain and help it subside. When I haven't, all hell breaks loose. Um, but but let, me, let me tell you what it is. My primary application with dealing with anger, it's got to be simple. I'm a simple guy. I can't have a list of 10 things about how to deal with anger because I will forget all of them. Unless they're written down and that list will be too long. And I'll, but, but by the time I get that out of my pocket, it, it, it's, you know, it's too late. So I had to have something um, simple to go by, so it, I, 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 I use these three words. Stop, drop, and roll. The, the same thing you do when you're on fire. Right? The same thing you do when you're, when you're on fire. Stop, drop, and roll. First thing, stop and think about it. Stop and think about it. Ask yourself, what am I believing right now? What are, your, what are my expectations? What, what am I worshiping? And, and then realign yourself with truth. Stop and realign yourself with truth. Let God's words inform and influence and transform you. Look at James chapter 1. James chapter 1. By the way, the book of James is a lot like the Sermon on the Mount. The brother of Jesus. The Holy Spirit inspired him to write something that sounded a lot like Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. But here's what he said in chapter 1 and verse 19. This you know, my beloved brethren, know what? Look right before that. 
that it, by the exercise of God's will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be of a kind of first fruits among his creatures. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, listening, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Slow to anger. Why? What's the reason why? Well, the reason why is because the anger of man, the next verse says, does not achieve the righteousness of God. You can't get there from here. That's what he's saying. You can't take the road of anger and get to the righteousness of God. Not going to happen. You're going in the wrong direction. So what are you supposed to do about it? Look at verse 21. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. The word of God is going to help you not get into uncontrollable anger. The word of God is going to help you not get angry. It's another reason to memorize and meditate on Scripture as individuals and households and as small groups. Go with me to Ephesians 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Very well-known passage here. We'll start at verse 26. All in the context of how a Christian is supposed to live. How a person who claims to follow Jesus and love Jesus and be saved by Jesus and be going to heaven, how they are to live while they're on earth. So it's intensely practical. And it says in verse 26, Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do not give the devil an opportunity. Now you've got to balance this out with the end of this chapter. Verse 31 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger be put away from you. Get it away from you. I have heard so many people use Ephesians 4.26 as an excuse to be angry and to stay angry. Be angry and yet do not sin. You've got to remember that. Don't sin in your anger. Where does it come from? It comes from Psalm 4, verse 4. It was a prayer of trust in God. Psalm 4 And verse 4 says this, tremble and do not sin. Literally, tremble with anger and do not sin. Tremble with anger, but don't sin in the process. And then the next phrase says in in, in Psalm 4.4, tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. What does that mean? Meditate in your heart means to speak in your heart. Speak in your heart upon your bed and be still. What does that mean? It's a conditional sentence. It basically means this. If you feel anger at those who, let's say, slander you. By the way, the context was Absalom chasing after his father, David, in order to try to kill him. That's the context of this psalm. It says, if you feel angry at those who slander you, don't sin by getting angry and seeking revenge against them. 
do not yield to, to the desire and retaliate against them, but yield to God instead. The way to keep from sinning is to ponder and be silent. What are you pondering? Not what the person did, rehearsing it over and over again in your mind, and then rehearsing what you're going to do to them or say to them. Not that. Rehearse God's goodness. Rehearse how many times God's rescued you from danger. How many times God's forgiven you of your sins. Think about how good and and faithful and and kind and, and loving and gracious and trustworthy God is. See, revenge consumes the lives of those who engage in it. Psalm 37 and verse 8 says, Refrain from anger, forsake wrath, fret not yourself, it leads only to evil. Don't meditate on that. Meditate on God. It is not God's will that you remain angry, nor is it God's will that you unleash your anger anger on someone else to attack them. What is God's will is for you to yield to Him and enable, allow Him to dissipate the feelings of anger, to to take the feelings of anger away so you don't become consumed by it. To those that are just deeply mired in anger, this seems like an impossible task. But it's what God does, not what we do. God can do this in our life. God is our deliverer. Anger is a dangerous substance that we are to stay away from. We don't, we're not supposed to harbor it within us. We are weak. God is strong. We're, we're to be, as Ephesians 6 says, uh, strong in the Lord and in the power of His might, not our own we don't have any constant dwelling on the words of scripture will make an imprint on your heart and life and will help you to be strong so stop first thing second thing drop this is the easy one drop to your knees in prayer or uh, literally speak out to god out of the depths of your heart in prayer instead of calling names (laughs) pray about it ask god to take your anger away confess it to god god i'm angry I can't, I can't deal with this. Please deal with it for me. Ask him for wisdom. James said, if you lack wisdom, ask God. He will give it to you. Let go of your expectations. Drop them. <laughs> Let go of your expectations of God and other people. You were expecting God to come through like this and you got angry? So God has to do everything you think he should do? You thought the people should do this and they didn't? So you get angry? As if they have to do everything at your beck and call? Turn away from anger, forsake wrath, repent of it. Uh, If you've blown it, make things right again. Go to anyone you've hurt, humble yourself, apologize, and then begin to build a new track record that eclipses the old one. Don't just tell them, hey, I've changed after five minutes. Let them see it. Show more than you tell on this one. Uh, and, And then the third thing, roll. That's, I know that's the confusing one. What does that mean? What do you mean, roll? Roll what? Um, you need to look at Proverbs 16.3. Proverbs 16.3. Uh, or you can listen to it here. Here's what it says. Uh, Commit your works to the Lord, and your plans will be established. Commit your works to the Lord, your plans will be established. The Hebrew word for commit literally means 
roll. If you have a New American Standard Bible, it should be there in your margin. Literally, roll. Yes, it, it really means that. <laughs> All right? The simple thing of rolling, it really means that. Um, it, 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 give it over to God. Uh, yield to Him. Let Him rescue you. Uh, someone has provoked you? Someone's poked you in the eye relationally? Let God be the judge. He will protect you. James chapter 4 really uncovers a lot of things about our anger even. James 4.1 says, What's the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Focus on seeking what God wants. Release your hold, drop your hold on your agenda and your plans. Walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit of God, as we read in Galatians chapter 5. See, outbursts of anger are deeds of the flesh. They're the fruit of the flesh, not of the Spirit. Romans chapter 8 and verse 12 tells us that all who are indwelt by the Spirit of God are, are sons of God, children of God. And it says that if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live by the Spirit. See, at, at its core, anger reveals a complete lack of self-control. And self-control is a fruit of the Spirit an outcome of the Spirit of God indwelling us. Something we can do that will rarely get us in trouble when we are angry is to keep our mouth shut. See, we rarely regret what we don't say. Proverbs 17 says, even a fool when he, when he stays silent is considered wise. I like to remember that verse. Uh, practicing the discipline of silence will pay dividends. Don't say the first thing you think of. Stop, drop, and roll. Now this is a, a simple, but it is a, uh, it's practical, but it's a tall order. A very tall order for us who are so often surprised by what can come out of us when we're not at church on our best behavior. Amy Carmichael said, if, if I can think an unkind thought, if I can speak an unkind word or write an unkind letter without grief and shame then I know nothing of Calvary love she said a cup full of sweet water cannot spill one drop of bitter no matter how hard it's bumped but we're often caught in, a, in the middle of a desire to, to both please God and take revenge on our enemies and you can't do both how do we reconcile the two? We usually take one of two options. Either the retaliation route, we go that way, or the resignation route. See, we either give in to anger, or we give up and resign ourselves and, 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 and don't do anything. But could there be another way? Yes, there is another way. We can take a third way. It's the way of Jesus. The way Jesus took. The way of the crucified one. 
If there was ever a time for anger, if there was ever a time for wrath, if there was ever a time for retaliation, it would have been Good Friday. Good Friday. On that day, Jesus, who had been tortured by sinful man, beaten and whipped to a bloody pulp, went all the way to the cross. He went all the way to the cross and he took the most torturous punishment anyone ever would, both physically but also spiritually. Instead of lashing out at his enemies, Jesus took the scorn, took the insults, took the beatings, the whip, and the nails, and embraced the cross. Jesus embraced the cross. He did not give in. He did not give up. He gave out. He gave his life out of love for us. Jesus endured God's wrath against sin so we wouldn't have to. He took it all for love. You see, God's anger and God's wrath, God's love, met at the cross. Do you realize that God is the most angry person in the Bible? In a holy way? And that God is the most loving person in the Bible? And God's anger and his love met at the cross. God's anger at sin was expressed there. And our substitute, Jesus the righteous, took all the anger upon himself so that we might experience his love. That's the heart of the gospel. The punishment we deserve, Jesus bore because he loves us. And in response, we believe. In response, we yield. Because of Calvary love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The way of Jesus trumps the way of hate and murder and anger and retaliation and insults and accusations. It is the way of love. It is the way of mercy. It is the way of grace. And it is the way God wants us to walk. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you today knowing that we fall short of your glory so often because of our sin. And Lord, we come to you asking for your mercy. Just asking for your mercy, Lord. And knowing that you hear our prayers. We pray, Lord, for anyone here that may not know that mercy and that grace and the Jesus that paid the penalty, that took the anger and took the wrath. And I pray, Lord, for anyone in that, in that situation today, that you would open their eyes, that they, would, that they would know the truth and that you would set them free by the truth. And Lord, for those of us who, who know you and love you, but so often get tangled up in, in angry thoughts and angry words and angry actions, Lord, forgive us. Lord, cleanse us. Lord, free us to walk in the love and the grace and the mercy that you intend. We pray in Jesus' name.